Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm here today with Lori Chris, Associate Director of the Ohio Council of Behavioral Health and Family Service Providers. Lori, welcome. Hi, Greg. Thanks very much for having us here today. It's our pleasure. So the Ohio Council is a trade and advocacy organization representing over 155 private organizations that provide addiction recovery, mental health, and family services to over 600,000 Ohioans annually. That's impressive. That's a big number. That's a lot to stay on top of, I'm sure. It absolutely is. Yeah. So, Lori, can you tell us, our listeners, how you became associated with the Ohio Council? So I began working for the Ohio Council a little over four years ago. And uh, prior to working at the Council, I was working with an addictions treatment provider here in central Ohio. And my role there was largely planning, administrative, engaging in community collaborations and partnerships. And I really became invested in the policy and advocacy work that takes place on behalf of people with substance use disorders, but also on behalf of the providers serving them. So making sure that there are policies and resources available to promote access to services and capacity for services and to develop the workforce that's needed to really help the the men, women, families, children in Ohio that have substance use disorders. Okay. So how can your organization help families that are that have a loved one struggling with opioid addiction? The thing that we do here at the council as a trade organization is monitor federal and state policies that promote practices that really do give families access to treatment in a timely way. So our work is largely focused on making sure that what's evolving at the Ohio State House, through the administration, or even in federal legislation, is done in a way that creates opportunity for people to get the services they need at the time they need them and when they're motivated to get them, and to not create artificial delays or barriers for a family getting the help that they want. And, you know, that's the biggest challenge, getting the help that you want, knowing what you need, what you don't need, because when you're faced with this, you're in a time of crisis. Absolutely. And uh, for many people, most parents, it's their, their first time through that. 
So do you have any tips for families to how to wade through that? I think that people really don't know about community behavioral health programs until maybe they need them or a family member needs them. So there's organizations in every county across the state of Ohio that are nonprofit or for-profit treatment providers that are specializing in treatment and recovery from substance use disorders. And I think a lot of people assume that the healthcare system may be a good entry point into substance use treatment, but right now that hasn't been the case. People really are seeking out specialty providers to do that. And the providers across Ohio are providing a wide array of services, whether it's detox or residential or outpatient services to people in our communities. And they accept Medicaid as a payer. They accept um, private commercial insurance as payers. So a family really should reach out to the treatment providers in their local community and see how they can gain access to services rather immediately. Okay. So they reach out to them and they've got a few candidates. How do they screen them further? What are the most important things for them to look at to further qualify what the best fit is for their loved one? Mm-hmm. I think a, a family, a person who's looking for services, really should think of themselves as shopping for the best right fit. Does this uh, match my motivation? Do they offer the services? Is it an environment that I feel comfortable in and uh, is approachable. Do they accept my insurance? Is this affordable for me? It's the same thing we do when we go to any healthcare provider. Often, um, when we do seek healthcare for any condition, it's because we have a symptom or a crisis, and we sort of take the first thing that's available to us. And um, I, I think that happens in the the addiction services world as well. But I think the thing that families should remember is that. Finding that immediate access is one of the most important things that um, indicates a person's success with their addiction treatment. Mm -hmm. Timeliness to treatment. When a person's ready for treatment, that's the best time to get treatment, not three days later or five days later or a week later, because often their capacity to continue that desire is diminished as um, their return to their physical dependency on the drugs or alcohol or their cravings kind of hijack their decision-making. So in working with providers, finding that provider that can provide immediate access, that creates an environment where the family feels like they can ask questions, where they feel welcome, where they have access to quality information about the cost and the types of services offered is important. Okay. So those are all pretty much qualifiers. Mm -hmm. How about, are there any disqualifiers that you can think of when you come across this? I think that... Cash-only services usually trigger uh, a red flag or should trigger a red flag for folks. With With Mental Health Addiction Parity Act that was passed federally in the late 2000s, there is a requirement that insurance companies provide benefits for addiction services the same way they do for other health conditions. And so there's really not a reason for a provider to refuse to accept insurance or Medicaid. I don't think people know that. I'm not sure they do. And I don't think people know that. So they can't turn it down. They They can't can't turn it down. Well, the insurance company has to cover it. 
A provider can say, I don't accept it, I'm cash only, but their insurance company has to provide the benefit. So if a provider is choosing not to accept insurance and is doing a cash only business, I mean, there are some, some reasons from an economic standpoint, a feasibility standpoint, that a provider may do that, but it really doesn't create the business climate, the quality climate that those providers who are working with commercial insurance or Medicaid would be operating within. So, Lori, I understand there's a policy change coming down sometime in 2017. I'm not sure exactly when, but it's a policy change that will really impact families and their ability to get counseling and get it paid for by their insurance providers. Can you tell us how that'll work? Sure. So, uh, Ohio is in the process of what's called behavioral health redesign. And we're looking at the Medicaid benefits for people with substance use disorders and mental illness and how the system can be more responsive to their needs to create the access capacity in the workforce to really meet the needs of people across Ohio. One of the challenges in substance use treatment traditionally here has been that family members can't get counseling as part of a person's treatment for addiction. And with this new policy change in 2017, family counseling will now be a benefit that's part of the Medicaid benefit for, for people in Ohio. So uh, a community behavioral health program, community addiction treatment provider, will be able to provide family counseling for those uh, for the loved ones of a person who's in a treatment program, or we'll be able to provide family counseling services to a person who isn't even in addiction treatment, but if they're uh, able to be identified as a person with a family member suffering from addiction, they'll be able to receive some services and supports. So that's a key qualifying element. Mm -hmm. So they have to be somehow related or attached to uh, a loved one or right. family member who is going through opioid addiction. Right. And there are, there are commercial insurance providers who offer that same benefit today. So families should connect with their insurance coverage and see if there's a benefit available to them. Because often we know that Families want to be supportive and want to be helpful of either motivating someone towards treatment and recovery, or if someone's in treatment and in recovery, knowing what the right next thing to do to help the person is. But that's something that is um, a very difficult skill set to build and needs some professional support. And so they can work with their insurance company to get access to that individual counseling or family counseling so that they can create an environment that's very supportive in a very appropriate and um, relevant way for the person with the addiction. So that brings them kind of into the fold, if you will, so that they're one step closer to truly be able to properly support their loved one in their recovery. Right. Right. Absolutely. People don't start using alcohol and other drugs by themselves. Typically, they do that in relationship with someone else. And it's filling a void for them in some way. Um, and people don't enter and maintain their recovery all by themselves either. They do that in relationship with other people. And if a family is supportive of a person's recovery, they should have the opportunity to be engaged and be supportive in ways that are appropriate. And they should have the support they need to get the guidance they need to, do, to provide that support in a way that's really meaningful for the person in recovery as well. Okay. So um, what do families need to know 
in supporting their addicted loved one? What other things, you know, do families need to keep in the forefront of their mind that maybe isn't intuitive? I think that uh, historically in the United States, we've really miscommunicated what addiction is and given it this um, label of a person with addiction has made the choice to use and that it's as simple as them choosing not to use. And once they make that decision, then things will get better. Um, it may be true that a person chose to use initially, but everyone reacts differently to substances when they're exposed to them. Some of us are predisposed to addiction. We have uh, biological markers that make it more likely that we'll be dependent on substances than someone else. The age of the onset of use also largely impacts whether or not a person would have a substance use disorder later in life because of where they are developmentally. Can you give and, me some examples of right, that? Right. So age? most people that have an addictive disorder started using substances, and that might be alcohol or cigarettes, but around the age of 12 to 14, 16. So in those really early developmental stages where their brain isn't fully developed yet. So you put cigarettes in that same category? From a dependency standpoint, mm -hmm. yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's typically gateway for youth to experiment with cigarettes or with alcohol. We're seeing now that we've done a great job in helping everyone understand that cigarettes are dangerous and deadly. So youth tend to be shying away from those. But we've done an, an, another bang-up job on telling people that marijuana is medicine. And so youth have a very different attitude towards marijuana today than maybe they did 20, 30 years ago. And so we're seeing marijuana as a gateway drug. And I think as parents, we often have this idea that, well, it's normal for kids to experiment. It's, you know, a rite of passage. Um, and we do. I we felt do. that way. Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all kids do it or most kids do it or lots of kids do it, if nothing mm -hmm. else. Um, and for a parent to really know when it's tipping from something that should be addressed seriously or, or you know, considered in a, a parent-child relationship of, hey, you know this could have a dangerous impact on your health long term, to, hey, this is severely impacting you now and is going to have. Those are things that we haven't done a great job in um, educating the general public around. Yeah. We also know that kids with ADHD have a higher um, risk for substance use disorders whether they're treated with medications or not. Um, and that's another thing that we haven't done a great job in supporting families, educating families. Um, when I say we, I mean we as a community in the United States, very broadly, haven't done a great job in helping people understand that sometimes it's not just experimenting and normal kids will be kids stop. Sometimes it's really high-risk, dangerous behavior. Well, and I think that there's another point here uh, to be made when it comes to what we're talking about, which is opioid addiction, mm -hmm. because that's so much more powerful. Mm -hmm. um, can you can you speak to that? I mean, it's like for parents out there that listen to this, um, you think I did it well and, and I came out fine mm -hmm. type of thing. Well, chances are you, you didn't. Not this stuff, not this, this class of right. drug. And right. imagine if the stuff that you were using way back when, um, within two weeks, two weeks, you were hooked on it. And imagine if you were hooked on it legally. A doctor gave you a prescription for it. And right. you did what the doctor said. And within two weeks, mm -hmm. you were hooked. And that brought you down the road. And that's what changes the game in my 
It does. And, and everybody reacts differently even to prescription drugs. So one person can take an opiate and take it one or two times, feel the effects, but not feel the dependency and the um, compelling, the, that obsessive compulsive behavior to continue using the same way someone else. And that's a biological factor in independency that not everyone has, but some people do. And I think that's the other thing that parents don't necessarily understand. Well, I got Vicodin when I went to the dentist and I took it and I was fine. That doesn't mean that your child will have that same experience. And we do have to be more protective and more guarded with that in a way that I think um, we didn't realize 10 years ago. So when that crisis hits and you realize that your son or daughter is addicted to opioids, um, I think that there's an overall feeling out there of, oh, it's crisis, we're going to roll up our sleeves, we're going to figure this thing out, we're going to find the best rehab facility that we can find mm -hmm. that's a good fit for my son or daughter, we're going to get them in there, and in 90 days they're going to be fixed and we're going to go on about our lives. Can you comment? Absolutely. So addiction has several parts to it. It's a biological, psychological, but also a behavioral and a social disease. And the biological and psychological aspects of addiction are often very well addressed in a 90-day treatment program or in outpatient services. And even the behavioral aspects can be addressed to a certain extent. But the, the thing that we've really started to turn the corner on over the past four to five years is recognizing that addiction is a chronic disease, not an acute disease. So it needs a long-term solution and not a short-term fix. And um, a, a short-term treatment program just can't offer a person the time that they need to make the permanent life changes that they need to make to achieve long-term sobriety. So some examples of that are um, when a person's living in the culture of addiction, they have a number of skills that they use on a day-to-day -day basis to stay alive and to stay functioning. And those skills can often be very useful in the culture of recovery too. There's a tenacity that it requires um, to continue to wake up and, and function and um, manage your opiate sickness um, through finding another dose, that sort of thing. The same thing can be true in the, the culture of recovery. And learning how to have that same tenacity with not using is a very difficult thing, and it's a minute-to-minute -minute decision that needs to be made. So when a person's in a treatment program, they're often in an environment that's rather protected from or cushioned from triggers or stimuli that would maybe help a person think about using. So they're in an environment, and if they do have a feeling or a thought about using, there's people all around them that will help them process that feeling, that thought, and and not use, you know, make the decision not to use. Um, if a person's in an outpatient treatment program, they're in that cushioned environment while they're at the treatment center. But when they come home, they're not. And often there are families who are have a, a really safe living environment. There's no one else using in the household. There's, um, but they don't have the skill set necessary to help that person practice recovery on a day-to-day -day basis within their home. What is the skill set and how do they acquire that? So 
In my experience, the skill set often requires other people who have lived experience with addiction and recovery. So as a non-recovering person myself, I can only go so far in supporting someone. But um, in in that work, either as a professional or in my personal life, knowing that one of the greatest predictors for success for a person long-term is their connection to a sober support group. Now, that may be what we think of more traditionally as you know, 12-step programs, AA or NA. I'm sure most folks have heard of that. But there's a lot of different support groups that, that are available. Um, there's youth groups that are focused on not using. There are collegiate recovery communities that are um, being established throughout the state of Ohio. There are faith-based communities that offer uh, recovery support groups as well. So, you know, each person really needs to find the their own thing. Their own thing that yeah. makes sense for them, that resonates with them, and not feel like they have to go into one way to of AA. finding that peer support. Or whatever. Right, or whatever. Or whatever. Yeah. 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 Um, but at the same time, I really do believe that people, places, and things is a really tremendous um, catchphrase in the recovery community. Who we hang out with. Sure, for the triggers. Where we go, what we do largely impacts the quality of the life that we lead. Mm -hmm. And so if we're hanging around with other people that are committed to not using, if we're going to places where substance use isn't the focus of the environment, and if we're doing things that don't involve substance use, we're far a person's far less likely to continue to use than a person who's in high-risk situations, especially in early recovery. I mean, I think that's true um, probably research would show that's true, maybe 12 months, two and a half years into sobriety. But those first six months to 12 months are really delicate time for people in recovery. And families, I don't think, necessarily know that. And are there any resources that you can cite, Lori, for families to get that knowledge? I think there are some other organizations like um, Young People in Recovery has uh Informate. They're a national group. They have information um, specifically geared towards young adults who are in recovery. Do you know how they define that, young adults? Uh, it's it's an ever-changing definition mm. based on okay. <laughs> um, because people are in long-term sobriety. So they're starting oh, sure. to grow up, right? They're sure. starting to yeah. age yeah. like the rest of yeah. us. Um, but they really are typically folks in their 20s that are in recovery and doing policy and advocacy work and also just establishing um, recovery communities. Um, there are Ohio Citizens Advocates for Addiction Recovery. OCAR is an organization here in Ohio that provides advocacy opportunities and resources for families as well. Wow, fantastic. Um, <clears throat> what else would you like to share? with our listeners about the, maybe about the opioid epidemic mm -hmm. or about recovery in particular? I think it's important for families and for people to know that treatment can be and is most likely an important part of our recovery path for many people and that they can find quality treatment in their local community and that they can build a long-term relationship with a treatment provider that can be very supportive of their needs, not just on that 60 to 90 day uh, experience that, that some people get when they go out of state for treatment, um, but that there are local resources and supports within communities across Ohio 
that really are high quality special tre- specialty treatment providers that um, can give them strong psychological counseling. Um, medication assisted treatment can be accessible through them behavioral counseling, and then helps them create a recovery plan that they use both within that treatment program and in the rest of their lives as well, so outside of the treatment program as well. And those are things that families, again, I don't think most people know that those services and supports exist until they need them. Hmm. And part of that's because we don't really talk about recovery or people that are in recovery very much. Um, and so we haven't shared that part of the story very well. But they are around, and people should be pursuing those local relationships. Um, Addiction is not something that can be cured with a geographic fix. It's not something where, you know, if I just go to this camp in Montana for six months and then come back, things will get better. Chances are when I come back, I'm going to hang out with the same people and I'm going to be involved in the same activities that I was before I left because I haven't built any new, more positive, healthy relationships. And so, you left them behind back there. Left them behind. In Montana that's right. Or and so, um, you know, you can't take a, a plant that's not doing well and transplant it somewhere else, see it start to become, you know, filled with life, and then put it back in that same soil and expect it to continue in that's great that great growth pattern. And that's the same thing that happens um, often when people look for that geographic fix. They, there really is an opportunity for people to, to begin and sustain recovery in their home community. And I would encourage folks to reach out to local treatment providers and see what types of services and supports are available to them. I know that most treatment providers, if they can't help a person in their situation, will help connect them to the right resources locally or within the state of Ohio to get what they need. There's a strong network and collaboration among the treatment providers in the state. So you're a real fan for staying in-state, staying local versus going remote in terms of your recovery, the treatment in particular. And if you go remote, Um, are there some strategies that you can employ so that you have the uh, largest probability of success? Well, I think, you know, I think staying locally, if we're talking about the state of Ohio, yes. You know, I think it's like any other healthcare service. I grew up in a small town in Ohio, and I did not expect that um, anyone would get heart surgery there because we didn't have heart surgeons, right? So we actually had to leave the state and go to a large city that was across the border and get those types of specialty, high-intensity, high-need services um, somewhere else. But when we when we were done with that surgery, when we, you know, our, our family member was, they came home to get better long-term. And that's what I think um, a family could be looking for. If they're working with out-of-state providers – and that's a choice their family's making, what does that out-of-state provider do to help connect with local community supports so that a person can return home and continue that treatment plan, that recovery plan, and not just recommend another six months out-of-state at um, a really high cost? And I, I hear families talk about that all the time. Great. Well, this has been terrific. Thank you so sure. much. Any last thoughts to share 
Absolutely. If um, anyone's interested on the Ohio Council of Behavioral Health and Family Services Providers website, we do have a list of member organizations. They're not all of the certified organizations in the state of Ohio, but that website does include a list of those treatment providers in the state that are nationally accredited and certified and part of our membership, and that can be a great resource for families. And we also have other resources available if people are looking for information and, and links to find information for their own their own family's needs. Great. Yeah. Thanks, Lori. Thank you. So we've been talking with Lori Chris, Associate Director of the Ohio Council of Behavioral Health and Family Service Providers. I'm Greg McNeil. I'd like to thank you for listening to our podcast today, and please tune in for future episodes. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.